0: Okay, let's uh let's pray. Father again, we thank you for this time and this place you granted. We pray, Lord, that above all else you would be glorified today. Pray that you would glorify yourself in us and through us. We ask that you would glorify yourself as you speak to us today through your word. And then that your word and words would not fall upon deaf ears. That, Father, not only we would hear, but that as a work of your grace and mercy, that we would respond, that you would continue, Lord, to sanctify us, that we would continue, Jesus, to love you more as we know you more, and that our lives would reflect it. Not just what we say and what we do, but what we feel and what we think. That everything about us would be a living, testimony to your gospel. Again, Jesus, we love you and we praise you for you alone are worthy. It's in your great name that we pray. Amen. If you haven't um, gotten a church bulletin, you might want to grab one. There's a little outline on there um, for today's sermon. As well as um, an announcement or two that you may find um, beneficial. So, um, grab one, or when you're leaving today, grab one as well, and just make sure to, to to look through it and see if there's anything pertinent in there for you. We are going to um, continue where I last left off. It was, I think, it was two Sundays, uh, two Sundays ago. We began. Um, what would be the last sermon in 1st um, John. So we're going to finish that today. Uh, we started what was called Christian Confidence. So we did part uh, part 1 or part A last time, and we're going to finish with part 2 part B today. So I'm going to go ahead and read 1st um, John chapter 5, verses 13 through 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. John, again, in these last um, uh, several verses, gives us his really uh, a purpose, if you will, statement, uh, regarding believers anyway, for writing um, this letter again. He says, that you may know. John writes so that Christians may have confidence in eternal life. I looked at that one last week from verse 13 confidence and answered prayer. That was 14 and 15, uh, 14 through 17. And again, we looked at that last week. Now, this week we're going to pick up here, which is the third point. John writes so that Christians may have confidence in conquered sin. That they may have, and that's verse 18, confidence in sonship. Um, not the sonship of Christ, but, but us as believers, that we are His children and finally he writes that we may have confidence in Jesus divinity in verse 18 John says we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning i mean so John says a believer doesn't keep on sinning but 1 John verse Sorry, first John chapter one, verses eight through ten, John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So on one hand, John says, What? He says, "We know that everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning." And then on the other hand, he says, "If you say that you don't sin, right, you're a liar, and you make God out to be a liar." So, have we found the contradiction that destroys the credibility of the Bible? Now I see some heads sinking. Of course, of course not, right? Listen, it's it's clear through the entirety of Scripture that christians and i'm going to throw in the word saints right still sin right? we have countless examples of this old testament and new testament right um we've got moses right i mean we know moses right who was is an old testament saint yet nonetheless moses moses sinned. and of course I mean, I'm just thinking, I'm sure there's countless sins just like there are for for us as well. But the one that first popped in my mind was his failure to what? His failure to trust trust God, right? Remember the story? Um, Joshua, right? Caleb, right? They come back after scouting out the land and they're like, we can take them, right? God is faithful and we can do it. Moses went along with the other leaders in Israel and said, no, you know, we can't do it. Right, Moses failed to trust. Moses failed to trust God. Right, um, we know that Moses was a was a saint, an Old Testament believer, a Christian, if you will. What about David? Right, David was a man after God's own heart, who was a murderer and an adulterer. Right, um, and and yet we know that he was a saint, is a saint, an Old Testament believer as well. So here we have believers who who sin. What about Peter, right? Peter's lack of faith and lack of faithfulness. I mean here we have Peter who 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 denied denied Christ. And you know I think about that and I think about that that story. I think about these Christians over in the Middle East that are being that are being killed for their faith and Christ and here we have who have not seen Christ, okay? I mean, and then here we have Peter who had seen Christ. Now we understand that his revelation might not be as, as full as the revelation that believers have today, but nonetheless, in the presence of the Almighty himself, and here he, denies, here he denies Jesus, right? Listen, believers, believers sin, right? What about the Apostle Paul, right? Not only do we know that The Apostle Paul was a sinner, not just prior to conversion, but post-conversion. We know by his own words that he struggled with sin. Let's look at that in Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, we're going to look at verses... um, 7 through 25, and I want to try to just break those down um, uh, somewhat to you, again, to see that believers still sin, and then we can get to what John is trying to say here in, in verse 18 of 1 John chapter 5, uh, Romans 7, um, 7 through 25, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. God's moral law, okay, reveals two things, all right? Paul explicitly. Here it states that it reveals sin, right? But it also reveals God's nature, right? God says don't lie, right? Well, reveals lying as sin, but it also reveals God's nature as truth. Again, God's law is just a reflection of his, of his nature and his, and his character. Um, let's continue in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He's articulating his struggle with sin, and I think any any honest, any believer who is honest with um, him or herself, right, in regards to sin, can read this passage and reads this passage and be like, "That's me. I, I get I get what Paul's saying, right? I do. When I read that passage, I I get what he's he's saying. I I can what is it? Empathize." with him. I can I can relate. I I get that. We, we we struggle as believers with sin. Listen. When God saves a person, right? That that person enters, we talked about this Wednesday night and I think a couple weeks ago as well. When God saves a person, okay? That that person enters into a couple new relationships, right? When God saves a person, that person enters into a new relationship with God and a new relationship with, with sin. So' us look at Romans uh, 8, 7. So we're going to come back to 7 here, so just look over to, to, to chapter 8, verse 7. It says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to, God, uh, for it does not submit to God's law, Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are not saved, those who are lost, those who are in the flesh are in fact hostile towards God, cannot please God. They are, as an unbeliever, God's enemy. So this is the relationship that the unbeliever has with God, is that the unbeliever is at enmity or is an enemy God of God with with God. And let's look at Colossians one twenty one. And again we're going to come back to Romans here. Colossians one twenty one. And you, this reinforces what we just said, and you who were once what? Alienated and hostile in mind, as an unbeliever, right? Doing evil deeds, right? He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The unbeliever is an enemy of God, is hostile toward God. But the believer is then reconciled to God. Reconciled with God. I love Romans 6.22. I have a shirt that Randy made for me that has Romans 6.22 on it. I love it. I wear it. Actually, I have a couple shirts that he made for me. and It says slave on it and then it just says Romans 6.22 under it. And I love it. I love to wear it. Romans 6.22 says, But now that you have been set free from sin... And have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Listen. The unbeliever, his relationship with God, is that he is or she is an enemy of God, his relationship with sin is that he or she is a slave to sin. Right? The believer, now having a new relationship with God and a new relationship to sin, the believer is no longer an enemy, right, but has been reconciled with God. He isn't just simply a friend of God if you will, but is a child of God and is in fact, as Paul says in Romans, a slave no longer to sin, but a slave to Christ. So again, the believer has a new relationship with God, right? And a new re- a new relationship to sin, no longer a slave to sin, but having been reconciled to God, if you will, a slave To Christ. Back to Romans 7. Picking up then in verse 21, Paul talking about his his struggle with sin, his his relationship now as a believer, if you will, to sin. He says, so, in verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. One, Paul having a new relationship with God and a new relationship with sin Wants to do right. Okay? Listen, the unregenerate person does not want to do right. Eh, not that unregenerate people aren't moralistic people, right? But he's talking about a doing right to please God as a result of what God has done in him and, and through him. Not doing right as a, a, a work of duty, but Paul wants to do right as a devotion to Christ. All right? Again, as a result of that new relationship with God and that new relationship to sin. For I delight in the law of God. As an enemy of God, Paul didn't delight in the law of God. Oh, he was a he was a legalist, but there was no delight in God's law, but now having a new relationship, he delights in the law of God. He says, In my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. (laughs) What does he say? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Again, we can see through Paul's example man's new relationship with God and with sin. But concerning sin, he he doesn't want it, does he? No. He wants to do good. He delights in God's law. He he doesn't want sin. He doesn't desire sin. In fact he hates sin. But there's always a but, isn't there? But what? But he still struggles with it. But doesn't want it. He doesn't desire it. It doesn't have mastery over him. So for John to say, back in first John now, five, eighteen, For John to say that a believer does not keep on sinning, he means that a believer, now having a new relationship with sin, no longer desires it, no longer wants it, no longer loves it, no longer is controlled by it. Listen, the believer is not mastered by sin but has mastery over sin even though we still sin and even though we still struggle with it. See, a true believer will hate sin yet still struggle with it. A true believer will be or sorry, a true believer will consistently turn from sin, repent, right? A true believer will live a repentant life but yet will still struggle with sin. Again, John's point and desire is that a true believer can be confident that sin no longer has mastery over us. Why? Because Christ has mastery over us. We can have confidence in conquered sin not because we have overcome it, but because Christ over back in First John 5.18 again. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. I'm just going to briefly um, uh, spend but a moment on, on this last part of verse 18. Listen, um, Satan is on God's leash, right? He's, he's God's devil and can only do what God allows. And I think it's appropriate that, that John includes this in this, this sentence, if you will, where he's addressing sin, because I think all too often, um, believers, when it comes to our struggle with sin, we want to include like Satan in that struggle, right? devil's going to tempt me to sin. Now, first of all, um, I don't think the devil is concerned with you, Okay. Um, I I, I don't. I don't think he's concerned with me. He's got bigger fish to fry. Right. Um, Second, you don't need Satan um, to sin. You don't need Satan or his minions to tempt you to sin. Um, We do fine um, on our own. Don't we? I think if all of us were honest with ourselves, we would say, "Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I don't, I don't need him. In fact, I probably do a better job sinning without Satan. Because, like, if Satan was actually attacking me, and I knew it, I'd be driven to Christ probably more than I am left alone. Okay. So probably the best thing he could do in regards to us, right, being tempted, is leave us alone, right? We don't need him. Um, to tempt us, right? We, we do a good enough job on our own. Listen, the devil though, nonetheless, he's, he's God's devil, right? Um, what did he do in relations to Job, right? Satan went to God and he said, God, I want to do this to Job, right? So one, he had to ask permission, okay? And God said, yeah, you can do this, but don't lift a finger against himself, right? So not only did he have to ask God's permission, but he had to obey God's command, Listen, if the example of Job is not enough to convince us that God is sovereign over Satan, of course, then Jesus' resurrection is. Listen, he rose from the dead, demonstrating his power over sin, right? his power over death, his power over Satan. Right? Listen, we as believers, when it comes to the workings and the working of Satan, right? we have nothing to fear. I'm not saying he's not real. Spiritual warfare isn't real, okay? We have nothing to fear, right? His defeat has occurred and his destruction is imminent. All right, second point, verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John writes so that Christians may have confidence in in sonship. And again, sonship speaking about our relationship with God. We're no longer enemies of God, no longer at enmity with God, but we are now his children, his sons, if you will, and his His daughters. As believers, we can have confidence in the fact that we are children of God. Last week, right? We can have confidence in. That we know that we are saved, right? And salvation results in in what? We just saw this in this previous point. Salvation results in a new relationship. It's, it's not like we just get off the hook, right? Like, you're off the hook, buddy. Go for it, right? But we actually enter into a new relationship with God. Let's look at Galatians 4, 6, and we're going to expand a little bit upon this relationship and how, how Paul defines it, really how God, through Paul, defines this, this new relationship uh, from a personal perspective, not just from an enemy, no longer an enemy, right, and slave, but from a personal perspective. Let's look at Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. We've got a couple of verses here we're going to roll through. Um, Galatians 4 6. And because you are sons, regarding us and our relationship to God, he says, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, crying what? Crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a, a slave, but a son. And if a son then an heir through God, let's go to Romans back to Romans Romans chapter eight again. I love um, this description of the relationship that we have with God as as Paul explains here in Romans chapter eight. It's absolutely. Incredible and the implications are profound. Romans eight fifteen. Actually let um let's just start in verse twelve. Sorry. We'll read twelve through seventeen. So then, brothers, we are debtors But you have received the spirit of adoption. Just keep that word in your mind for a few moments. As sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Listen, Paul describes our relationship as believers as having been adopted by God whereby we are his, his sons and his daughters. We are his, his children. I mean, what an amazing picture of our relationship with God. I mean, it's it's a it's a unilateral relationship, isn't it? Where God chooses us. Out of love, he says, You are mine. And that's it. You're you're his. Listen, our confidence, right, and our relationship with God as his children comes in the fact that that he adopted us, right? That he chose us. That it was it was nothing that we did or nothing that we could We could do. It was completely and entirely his work. You know, I only know one one person, um, at least that I'm aware of. No, I know two. I'm sorry, but but one that that I know uh, intimately close. Uh, Lives in Ada. He's a grown grown man. has a has a a great family, and um, he was adopted by his parents as 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 a young child, and and he is a, a, a solid believer. And as he talks about his adoption. By his parents um, and and you know his, his earthly parents right he he explains you know this this incredible relationship that he has with them that that here he was an outcast right if if you will and these these people based on no work of his own out of love um, chose to chose to rescue him they chose to make him theirs and and he had absolutely no part in it. They they didn't choose him um because he could provide something for them that he that he ought, had something to offer, right? Or that he was just this incredible little boy or whatever the case, but but they they chose him simply because they loved him. And as having been chosen by them, there was nothing that that he could do, um, if you will, to, to undo that, that choosing. Right? He, had, he had no part in attaining it, and he has no part in maintaining it. And so it is with our adoption as children of God. We had no part in obtaining it. And we have no part in maintaining it. Listen, there there is no such thing as unadoption. I want you to understand that, right? Um, God adopts us as his children, and that's it. When the transaction is complete, which it has been completed it's 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 a guarantee it's a sealed thing, and there's nothing a person can do to to undo that that adoption i again I think of my friend Aneta, um little boy adopted by a mom and dad right it, it didn't matter um what what he wanted, if you will, at that point um you know uh, two years after his adoption, he could have said nope. I decide that I am unadopted. Would that have worked? No. Again, it was a unilateral action by his, his parents, as it is a unilateral, unilateral action by God. There's nothing that can be done as a work or a not work, if you will, of man, to undo that adoption. John um, chapter 10 verses um, 28 through 30. I give them, this is Jesus speaking here, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me He's greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. If you have been adopted by God, if you are now, right, no longer at enmity with God, but a child of God, there is nothing that can be done on your part or any, anyone else's part for that matter to undo that relationship, you can't be unadopted by man or by God. So, since we can have confidence in salvation, we again examined that last week. Since we can have confidence in salvation, and we can have confidence in our relationship through adoption, we can have confidence. In the security of our salvation. There is nothing, absolutely nothing that a believer can do or not do, or however they want to try to package that, right? There is nothing that a believer can do to compromise his or her salvation or to undo his or her salvation. The adoption is final. 19 right. B of 1 John. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Um, again, John's just making a distinction here between those who are gods and those who are not. Um Listen. There's, there's no, there's no middle ground, okay. Either, either you are a child of God, and we looked at this right um, early on in First John. Either you belong to God and are a child of God, or you belong to the world, and if you will, a child of, of the devil, right. But, but there is, there is no, no middle ground. We, you know, here we live in the uh, the Bible Belt, so to speak, right. We've got a lot of moralistic People who believe the Bible, believe in God, okay, but they're not Christians. They're not they're not born again, right? But but yet they affirm certain things that we affirm. Listen, that that person, that moralistic, supposed Bible believing, God believing in Aiden is no more a friend of God than Richard Dawkins is a friend of of god there there is no there is no middle ground spiritually i've got a friend that i'm thinking of when i'm saying this i love him dearly and he he goes to church and he believes in the bible and he believes in god he's not a christian he thinks he's a christian you talk about the gospel you don't have to believe it like that i mean i'm not like that type of right listen spiritually there's no difference between him and 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 Richard Dawkins who hates God who actively works against and fights against God and his his children so there is again there is no middle ground either you are a child of God or a child of Satan all right third point verse 21 or 20 I'm sorry and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. Listen, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Listen, the entirety of Scripture proclaims the divinity of Christ. Now, we're not going to go through... You know, Genesis to Revelation, right? Um, doing this. What we're going to do is we're going to look at just three verses, right? Where Jesus proclaims in one form or fashion or another that he in fact is God. And not only in these verses are we going to see that, that he proclaims it, but at least in two of the verses, right? We see that those around him even acknowledge the fact that he was proclaiming to be got. Let's start. Um, let's start, John. Um, these aren't in, in order of verse, but it works as far as my sermon notes. So we're going to start John chapter 14. John 14 um, verse. Let's just start in verse eight. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on accounts of the works themselves. Jesus says, you've seen me, then what? Then you've seen the Father. Well, how can that be unless Jesus is God? Because we know that the Father is God. We haven't seen the Father. And in that regards, we haven't seen God but if we've seen Christ, or in his case, if he'd seen Christ and he's seen the Father, then it would give that Jesus is God. Now he didn't see him in all his glory, right? But nonetheless, has seen him. All right, John chapter ten. We're actually going backwards here. John ten verse thirty. Thirty three. Well. Let's start in verse 29. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands, right? We just just read that a few moments ago. He says, I and the Father are one. What was the response to that? In verse 31 it says, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So what did Jesus mean when he said, I and the Father are one? What he means is, I'm God right? The Jews understood that. The Jews understood that Jesus was making himself out to be God, that he was saying, I am God. And having understood that and not believing it, right? They sought to stone him. They sought to kill him. Jesus says, I am God. I and the Father are one, not just simply one in purpose, but one in essence, one in spiritual nature. If you will both divine God of very God. All right, back to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verses uh, 48 through 59. This is probably my, my favorite passage um, as far as Jesus revealing his, his uh, 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 deity goes. This is, this is the passage. Actually, I don't know if this is my favorite one. Um, uh, probably my favorite one is when he's in the garden, and they ask him if he's Jesus, and he says, I am, and the guy falls down, right? And the reason he falls down is because Jesus says, I am. He wasn't just saying, oh yeah, that's me, right? He's proclaiming his, his deity, and not only proclaiming it, he's revealing it with power, and that's why the soldier went, off his feet right so i probably that's probably my favorite one even though we're not gonna go there today this is maybe my second favorite one right i can do that can't i all right john 8 48 through 59 um the jews answered him are we not right in saying that you are a samaritan and have a demon jesus answered i do not have a demon but i honor my father and you dishonor me Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Talking about uh, not physical death, spiritual death, right? The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Of course, they didn't get what he was talking about. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Oh, so they ask him. They throw it down. Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. I would be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, again, still not getting it, right? You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? I, I mean, really, Jesus? I mean, how can you say that Abraham was glad to see your day and saw it? That was like so 2,000 years ago or whatever it was. I don't know. I just made that up. But however far back, right? They're like not possible. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. When, When Jesus responded to them, right, when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus was proclaiming to them that he was the great, and that he is the great, I am. He was proclaiming to them that that he was the one who spoke to Moses out of the bush when Moses said well, who should i who should i tell of them sent me and he said tell them tell them that i am sent you when jesus said to them i am he was proclaiming to be none other than yahweh god e eternal and their response was what they picked up stones right again to kill him accusing him of blasphemy because they knew he was proclaiming himself to be god again john writes that we may have confidence in jesus's divinity see the issue isn't that we can or are able to believe that Jesus is God. I mean, okay, yes, we are. As believers, we can know, we are able to know and believe that Jesus is God. But that's not the issue. The issue is that as believers, we must, we must believe that Jesus is God. Now, are there people who are saved that don't know or fully grasp this truth? Yes, of course there are. We we know that right, and we know that that's out of out of ignorance. We know that God saves people, all the time right, despite our misunderstandings, our lack of understandings. However, the true believer, when exposed to the truth of Christ's divinity, right, will not simply come to a place of acceptance, but will boldly and firmly grasp hold of this truth i love my now i I don't i'm not saying this because i believe that he's a believer and i've used this example in the past and you know i'm gonna use it again so if you're tired of it too bad no i'm just kidding um titus um i love asking him questions about jesus i love asking him um and even yesterday As I was going over my notes, I thought, I'm going to put it to the test to make sure that I'm I'm being truthful, right? I said, Titus, come here. And he comes into the room. And I said, let me ask you a question. I was like, all right. Who died on the cross? And he stopped and he looked at me. And he said, God did. And I said, yeah, you're right. God did. And then I said, but what was his name? What do we call him? The one who died on the cross. He was like, well, Jesus, don't you know Jesus is God? And then he left the room. You know? Um, I, I'm not saying that he's, he's, he's saved at that point for proclaiming that. But what I'm saying is that the believer will proclaim that, right? Uh, when exposed to that. Again, I, I think God saves people all the time that don't fully grasp that. There are things that we don't fully grasp that, that he's, he's bringing us to a fullness of, right? But it is necessary for the believer if you will, when exposed to that truth, to proclaim that. And what I mean by that is if you have someone who proclaims to be saved and yet denies the deity of Christ and persists in that denial, then that person is not a believer. For Jesus is God. Listen, Jesus is the foundation and the focus of our faith. If He is not God, then our faith is absolutely nothing. Worthless. If Jesus is not God, then there is no salvation. Because only the forever God-man could satisfy God's righteous wrath against sin. Again, it's man who sinned against God, so it was man who had to atone for sin, And yet herein lied the dilemma. Man cannot and could not atone for sin. Only God can or could have atoned for sin. But man had to atone for sin. Which leads us to our solution, right? The now forever God, man, Jesus, who is the Christ. If Jesus is not God, there is no salvation. And our faith is nothing see we can be confident as believers that jesus is god our faith demands it the bible proclaims it and the holy spirit confirms it now he gets to the final exhortation here in, in, in this letter um and and he really ties it right back to this last verse or the previous verse proclaiming christ's divinity he says little children Keep yourselves from idols. When I first looked at this verse, I'm thinking, now, wait a minute. I mean, that's a good exhortation, right? I mean, we should all keep ourselves from idols. But what does this have to do with the context of, of, of what he's just talked about? And I struggled with this for some time. I'm like, it, it, something's not flowing here, right? Um, all right. First, let's go to Exodus 20 as we kind of uncover this and conclude on this. Exodus 20, Ten Commandments. The Decalogue, we should all be familiar with. This to some extent. Exodus 20. God spoke all these words saying, I am, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, an idol, right? Or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. Now, now, commandment one and commandment two are, 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 are almost one and the same, right? Dealing with uh, uh, putting something above God, right? And, and that now relating to an idol or idolatry, okay? Now, John says right after talking about the divinity of Jesus, right? And that believers can not only have confidence in that but must have confidence in that he says little children keep yourselves from idols listen going back to verse 20 um if you get the wrong jesus okay talking about thinking about specifically his divinity if you get the wrong jesus you get the wrong god right if if you deny the divinity of a person denies the the divinity specifically in relationship to the triune god right god all right the father god the son god the holy spirit three unique distinct persons right separate individual yet one god right not that we can fully comprehend it though we can define it all right if if you deny the divinity of jesus you deny the triunity of God. And if you deny the triunity of God, you have the wrong God. You see, if you have the wrong Jesus, you have the wrong God. Jehovah's Witnesses, right, they deny the divinity of Jesus, right? Mormons, right, they believe that Jesus is the spirit brother, I think, of Satan, okay? Denying the divinity um from a triune perspective um, of God. You get the wrong Jesus, you get the wrong God. The Jehovah's Witnesses, they're Jesus. They're non-divine Jesus. He's an idol, right? He's not God. He's a false God. They've got the wrong Jesus and they've got the wrong God. The Mormons who think that he's the brother of Satan, right? They're Jesus. He's an idol, right? They have the wrong Jesus, And they have the wrong God, right? He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. I don't think that John was just talking about little Buddha statues on the Chinese takeout whatever bench, right? I think maybe specifically in the context of this passage, he was talking about keep yourself from a false view of Christ, right? And I was thinking about that in relation to what we see, right? I mean, we've got the Jehovah's Witnesses. We've got the Mormons. We deal with that. What about the people that claim to be Christians, that, that uh, we're not JWs or we're not Mormons, but, but we believe that there's more than one way to God, right? Listen, I, I think this is something that we probably experience, or at least I've experienced more than, than Mormon or Jehovah's Witness beliefs, right, is denying the exclusivity of Jesus, that there's more than one way to God. Listen, if you deny... The exclusivity of Jesus, all right, your Jesus or your view of that Jesus, that's a false Jesus. I watched a, a witness thing on the on the, on the TV and the girl said, well, I'm saved and I believe in Jesus, but I, I believe that other people get to God other than just Jesus, right? You know, the Buddhists have their way and they get to God through their way and the Muslims have their way and they get to God through their way. Listen, but but I believe in Jesus. That person's Jesus that they're believing in is a false Jesus. He's an idol. When you deny the exclusivity of Christ, you ultimately deny the deity of Christ by proclaiming the deity of all these other ways. There is one God. There is one God. And that one God is, if you will, made up of the Father who is not the Son of the Spirit, the Son who is not the Father of the Spirit, and the Spirit who is not the Son or the Father. There is one God. Now, finally then, as true believers, right? So we've, we've talked about that relation. This little children, keep yourselves from idols. All right, we're thinking about these false religions, these false converts, these false whatever, that deny the deity of Christ. Their Jesus then is our idols, Okay. What about, what about believers now? How does this then, in relation to the deity of Christ, um, relate to us in regards to idols? When we put things, self, stuff, money, hobbies, sports, when we put things above Jesus, right? When we put things above Jesus, those things are idols. Maybe not a little golden, fat statue, but nonetheless, they are idols. And with that, we essentially say that God is not supreme. He's not number one. See, though we don't deny his deity in doctrine, we deny it in practice. I think that's what John's concluding here. All right, little children... Keep yourselves your models, right? You say that that Jesus is God. You say that Jesus is divine. He is the great I am. Then live like it. Practice it. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for. Um, We thank you for the reality um, of what we have in you, um, specifically what, what John sought, what really you sought to reveal through, through this letter, right through John to us. But the reality that as believers, we, we can have confidence in eternal, in eternal life, that, that we can know that we are saved. We thank you that we can have confidence in answered prayer. We know that if we ask Anything according to your will, you will answer according to your will and that you will do so for your glory, according to your purposes. Understand that it's also for our good. We thank you that we have confidence in conquered sin. Not that we have conquered sin, not that we could overcome sin, but that Jesus, in our place, conquered sin for us thereby satisfying God's wrath against us. We thank you for the confidence that we have in our relationship with you, that we, through adoption, are yours. And you are ours. And it's a guarantee that, Lord, there is nothing that I could ever do, there's nothing that we could ever do to jeopardize that, that relationship or that standing. Um, with you or before you, we know that we sin, we know that you discipline us when we sin, and we know you do that for our good, and so that that is good, and we should want that, even though we should seek to 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 uh, uh, run from sin, but nonetheless, no matter what we do right, no matter what we do, we will never, we can never jeopardize our relationship with you, we are secure. And so we thank you, Lord, for the security that we have in you because of you. Finally, Jesus, you are God. And it thrills me to no end to dwell on this doctrine. The fact that you <laughs> you, Lord Jesus, are the one who spoke everything into existence. That you are the one who is now actively holding it together and that you as God are the one who hung on that cross for me personally, and for us, and for our sins. By doing so, you satisfy the Father's righteous wrath against us. And so, Lord Jesus, we praise you and we thank you again for who you are and what you've done. Lord, it's my desire, I think it's our desire to make much of you in our lives. So I pray we would. I pray we would make much of you, but we need your help in doing that. So I pray that you would continue to work in us and through us as we seek to glorify you and as we seek to make you known. in your holy and precious name we pray these things Amen